0: For a number of decades, there's been a lot of discussion concerning topics of the supernatural like healing and speaking in tongues and uh, prophesying, and it can create a a lot of confusion. Uh, Recently, I heard about a church that has a time set aside in its worship services for people to come forward and to be prayed for. And on one occasion recently, a gentleman came forward, and he happened to end up with the pastor who asked him what he desired prayer for. And so the man replied, Well, I need prayer for my hearing. And before he knew it, the pastor had his hands on the man's ears, and he was boldly praying for his hearing. And at the end of the prayer, with worship music playing in the background, the pastor asked the man, How is your hearing now? To which the man replied, I don't know, it's not until next Wednesday at the courthouse. (laughs) Confusion over these topics isn't limited to to just churches in our culture. Uh, There was confusion in the first century as well. And as we continue on in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians in our journey to uh, deep, uh, in this 14th chapter, we're going to encounter some true frustration from the Apostle Paul And if you haven't already done so, and you have a Bible there with you or your electronic device, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Paul was upset because when the Corinthians came together for worship, the services had gotten out of control. People were interrupting each other, shouting out that they had words of prophecy to give, or launching into speaking in tongues. And those visitors who were in attendance and and investigating Christianity, they didn't understand what was going on. And everybody seemed more concerned about showing others how spiritual they were rather than the church being a setting where people are encouraged and and where they're instructed from God's word. And so I want us to look at two primary issues that were causing confusion in Paul's day and and then apply those principles of worship to, to our church setting, to our congregation. And so let's begin with a definition of the gift of speaking in tongues. It means to speak in a foreign language that one has never studied. Now this miraculous ability to speak in foreign languages was first given to the Apostles in Acts chapter 2 when people from all over the world were, were gathered in Jerusalem and they were able to hear the gospel in their own language. And in this chapter, Paul says that some speak in a tongue that only God can understand. And Paul says this should only be used in the worship service if someone is there who's been gifted with the ability to interpret so that everybody can be encouraged by it. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, he says, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies Edifies the church. And so our goal as, as Christians isn't self-gratification, it's to build up the body of Christ, the church. And the reason that Paul spends so much time on this topic is that the church of Corinth, within, within their worship assembly, was losing their structure and taking on more of a, of a carnival or, or a talent show feel rather than a time of worship and glorifying God. And so Paul has to hit it head on. And Paul says, this is a good gift, but keep it in perspective. Basically, this is a summary of what Paul is teaching. Uh, Fill in these blanks on your note page there if you've downloaded it. The edification of the body of Christ is more important than showing off your gift. So do things in an orderly way. Now hopefully that gives you an explanation of speaking in tongues along with the context in which Paul shared his advice with the early church. Now let me define another gift. Uh, Here's a definition of the gift of prophecy. It's to speak forth by divine inspiration. Now when we hear the word prophecy, we think of generally, usually we think of of predicting or of telling the future. But that's just one meaning of the word. It means simply speaking the words of God. In New Testament times, the Holy Spirit gave the people a miraculous gift of prophecy, which which meant that they could speak God's specific words about the present and the future. That's what's being talked about here in this setting in 1 Corinthians 14. But today, we now have the Bible as our guide. And so we don't need people foretelling the future, uh, predicting the future. Uh, When we speak nowadays in our church of someone having the gift of prophecy, we're referring to the non-miraculous ability to proclaim boldly the truth of God's word. Today, the Holy Spirit uh, gives gives some a special ability to be able to preach or to teach or to prophesy or to share scripture with others. But today we have the benefit of the New Testament. They didn't have that in the early church. Their sharing was more miraculous, while ours is the result of sharing the words of the Bible as we're prompted by the Holy Spirit. And so for us, it might be in a neighborhood Bible study. Uh, It could be referring to something said from the pulpit. Uh, it might be a scripture or a spiritual challenge that you share with someone over, over lunch. Uh, it may be taking a coworker and keeping him from writing an angry email back to the boss and, and instead saying, hey, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Well, where did that come from? Well, that comes from the word, the Bible in the book of James, you say. And so we share that. Uh, That's what we mean by when we talk about the gift of prophecy today. In fact, did you notice this? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 31, For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Anytime we read scripture, we are being prophetic in the sense that we're declaring the revealed word of the Lord. It's when a teacher or a preacher hears someone say, Man alive, you were speaking straight to me today. That's just what I've been wrestling with. Or when they say, Hey, do you have my home bugged? Well, it wasn't that teacher. It was the prompting of the Holy Spirit that caused the speaker to say that. And then it touched your heart. Chris Seidman, a preacher in Texas, points out that back in this time, there were two reasons why God gave the gift of prophecy. First, the gift of prophecy is given for the strengthening of the believers. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse, 31, or verse 1 and 3, Paul says, follow the way of love eagerly. Or Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And so, you know, it's not about you. It's about building others up building up the church, and perhaps the reason we're especially to desire this this particular gift is because of its capacity to strengthen, encourage, and to comfort people. And then a second purpose of prophecy is that the gift of prophecy is given as a signpost for unbelievers. There can be an evangelistic dimension to the gift of prophecy. Uh, Lost people can be brought face-to-face with the truth of Scripture. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 14, beginning with verse 24, But if an unbeliever comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. And so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. You see, God can use the spoken word to pierce to the depths of the seeker's soul. And and when the church community came together, Paul expected this gift to be present. That's why he spends so much time giving instructions about the exercise of it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I think we could summarize 1 Corinthians 14 really into to one main theme and that is when you worship the Lord together do so in a fitting and orderly way. Well let's go on and divide the rest of our time in half and and let's see first of all the distractions to worship. The distractions to worship. Every culture Every culture has had some things to contend with when it comes to worship. Each can lead to disorder. And we're going to look at two of those issues that were kind of hot buttons for the first century church. The first was this, that numerous people were speaking in tongues in the early church. Now don't misunderstand this. Uh, By itself, in that setting, it wouldn't have been a problem. But the Corinthians were misusing the gift. And so Paul writes a letter to that church because they were misusing it. And Paul suggests limiting the number of people who spoke in tongues in that setting to just a a couple or three at the most, provided there was someone there who had the supernatural gift of interpretation so that people would know what was being said. And, and Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians. He, uh, look at verses 6, 9, and, and verse 12. Paul says, Now brothers, if, you come, if, if, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Uh, verse 9, he says, So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. And then verse 12, since you are eager to have, your, have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. Uh, in other words, the message has to be meaningful to the listener. Uh, if the Corinthians used this gift with no one there to interpret it, then it just drew attention to self, but it did nothing to strengthen the church. Uh, it'd be like having a beautiful, big sanctuary that seated, you know, 10,000 people, but if you didn't put a sound system in it uh, where you could understand what was being said in that large space, then why even have the big room? Some churches teach that if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not really spirit-filled. But you know what? That kind of concept, that teaching is not found anywhere in the Bible. If that were the case, in this chapter, Paul would be encouraging everyone to speak in tongues. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he encourages everyone to prophesy, to speak forth by divine inspiration what God prompts you to say in certain settings. Uh, at this church uh, neither your preacher uh, nor your elders have the gift of speaking in tongues uh, as a church body we don't practice it in the worship service but neither do we make it an issue make this issue a test of fellowship you know when someone says well this is what i do or this is what i've done in previous churches uh, can i can i still feel welcome here at first church we say to them we think that's great you know We simply ask a couple of things of you. First, don't come to First Church and try to persuade others that they should have the same gift. And then secondly, if you think you have such a gift, then please don't interrupt the worship service by speaking in tongues. In this church, it would cause more confusion than it would unity. And if you're willing to abide by those two requests, you're more than welcome to be a member of this congregation. Those are the two expectations that we've had as a church for many years. And God has blessed that. And you have respected that. That's one of the reasons we've been a united church, because we don't allow secondary issues to divide us. Now, why the need for speaking in tongues anyway? Well, when the church began, I think its think purpose was to validate God's plan prior to the completion of the New Testament. You see, not everyone spoke in tongues. It wasn't proof of having the Holy Spirit. And Paul demanded that those with the gift actually control themselves. Uh, Paul felt strongly that prophecy or preaching was more important. And Paul recommended that we be sensitive to unbelievers' negative reaction to speaking in tongues. Uh, Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, beginning with verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And so Paul has that gift. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You see, the Corinthians were being drawn off sides by their desire to exercise, exercise such a a dramatic gift in a a public setting. But you know what? There was another distraction and that was women speaking out in the worship service. So, fasten your seatbelts for this passage. In 1 Corinthians 14, beginning with verse 33, it says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Now, when it says law here, It's a reference to to an oral law that the Jews had added. This isn't to be confused with the Old Testament law that we read about in the Bible. And he says, they're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So have I got your attention here? Uh, you know, some would read that and they would say uh, they would say that Paul was just you know a male chauvinist pig. How dare he say such a thing? Well, hold on just a second. You have to remember that this is the very same man who said some very revolutionary and very radical things about women that were affirming of them in the midst of a society that generally demeaned them. Uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The common thread was baptism. In God's eyes, all had equal rights, and so while their roles may have been different, they shared the same rights regardless of their gender. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow, Uh, you talk about a radical thought back in that culture. Generally speaking, the status of women in that culture was just a little bit above, uh, you know, what was a little bit above property or, or, or animals. And Paul says to husbands, you love your wife, you sacrifice for her, even if it costs you your own life. And so, how does one reconcile words which honor women with these words in 1 Corinthians 14, which seem to demean women? that a woman should remain silent in church? I mean, we have women who sing, who give testimonies, who pray, who talk in the worship setting. And so are we doing something wrong then? Well, anytime, you, anytime you're trying to get at the real meaning of the text, you have to look at the setting And at this time, these Christians, particularly these Jewish men, had spent all of their lives to this point in Judaism. They'd grown up in the synagogue. Uh, They were accustomed to having an interchange with the rabbi who would be teaching there. But women weren't allowed to do that. Uh, One commentator explained it by saying that for a woman to have spoken in that public worship setting would have looked as if she were being rebellious to her husband. And so at that time, in that setting, Paul states what needed to be said so that the worship service would have an order instead of disorder. His words seem to reflect more of a cultural barrier than a biblical prohibition. In fact, in today's worship setting, you know, if Paul were covering this topic, I think he would say it wouldn't be appropriate for a woman or a man to speak out during worship. Regardless of gender, it would be distracting in this worship setting for anyone to speak out. Remember, you have to look at the context of the entire section. And so, everything Paul is saying is leading up to the last line of the chapter. Uh, verse 40, which says, But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And in that culture, for a woman to begin speaking at in a worship setting would have been such a deviation from the norm that the disruption would have distracted from the gospel message. And so Paul's simply trying to remove the chance of any interruptions so that the message can come through unimpeded. Again, remember the theme of this message, when you worship the Lord together, do so in a fitting and orderly way. Now, the worship principle is that we should not allow things in worship that in our culture would be considered disruptive, uh, rebellious, or detracting from the main mission. And I think the takeaway for us has got to be that when you come to worship, make certain that your personal worship doesn't detract from the worship experience of others, but that instead you enhance it. Uh, When you come to church, uh, you lean forward in anticipation, not back. And so you're not apathetic, you're engaged. And hey, don't leave early at the end of the service. Instead, you pray for those people that may be making decisions. You're not flamboyantly calling attention to the way you sing or you worship, but you celebrate with reverence for God, and you respect those around you. Uh, somebody asked me recently how I, felt about the, how I feel about the raising of hands in worship. And I said, I've got to be honest and tell you that when it comes to worship, I believe that God is much more concerned with where your heart is than he is with where your hands are. In fact, we're told in the Bible to raise holy hands to him. So as long as you're sincerely worshiping and not simply attracting attention to yourself, then you're worshiping in a fitting and an orderly way. Well, what principles for corporate worship can we learn from this passage from 1 Corinthians 14? Well, to begin with, worship uh, should always include biblical teaching. When the church community came together, Paul expected this to be present there, biblical teaching. And when we think of prophecy nowadays, it's akin to biblical preaching and teaching. God uses us based on our availability and we can all be used by the Spirit of God to speak a message to someone else. That's what scripture says. In fact, all of the spiritual gifts mentioned in Paul's letters, of all of those, the gift of prophecy is the one that he talks the most about, or, um, the most often about. And not so much in, in some supernatural, miraculous way. Uh, But now, since you've been exposed to the Bible, you can pour it out to others. Or if your friend asks your advice uh, on their marriage, well, you try to speak God's truth and not man's opinions. Prophecy is proclaiming God's word to all people. uh, to To share biblical teaching regardless of the setting and then secondly uh, in worship our worship should edify the entire body. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 5 I would like every one of you to speak in tongues but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. You see the goal is edification. Uh, You know, you might go out for lunch later today and you might have an awesome meal. Uh, You know, your favorite meal. uh, Everything that you're uh, most crazy about. Or it may be nothing special, you know, no bells or whistles, just normal stuff. But hopefully the result is that everyone is fed and nourished. Different foods that you ate you know you, that you eat may not be your favorite but you are still strengthened and edified well due to our personal preferences there will be a sermon or a song which really resonates with us or it may be that the sermon or the song is just okay but the intent is still for all of us to vent to benefit and to be strengthened i mean either way the result should be the same it, it may not have been as exciting to you but you were still edified by it. And so as leaders, we try to edify edify a wide variety of age groups and spiritual backgrounds and appetites. But hopefully the result is that everyone is fed, everyone is nourished and edified. And so uh, the worship points to Christ rather than to the talent of a singer or the flow of a service or the creativity of the speaker. And then thirdly, worship should attract unbelievers to Jesus. Uh, Let's read 1 Corinthians 14 verses 22 and 23. Paul says, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who don't understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you were out of your mind? Uh, and so this passage reminds us that churches need to, need to be aware of how the unchurched feel when they come to a worship service. Uh, you know, some churches, some churches don't consider what the experience is like for the unbeliever. They speak churchy language and they use insider terms. And so the guests who are investigating Christianity often leave confused rather than inspired. Other churches may be swayed to the opposite uh, extreme the opposite side of the pendulum and they plan everything to cater to the unbelievers. Uh, we call these churches seeker-driven churches. They would never go through a sermon series on 1st Corinthians like this because in their opinion too much Bible at first will turn people off. But Paul mentions that the goal is conviction of the unbeliever we are not here to entertain unbelievers, uh, throw in just a little dose of Jesus, you know, and hope they get it eventually. While churches may differ on how they go about it, the ultimate desire is that the truth is preached so that the Spirit can convict them of their need for a Savior. And then we can explain to them how to be saved. And so we don't apologize for sharing scriptures and for opening up the Bible because it's so powerful. And then finally, worship should be orderly and not impromptu. Uh, At the root of Paul's phrase, uh, fitting an orderly way, is this idea of preparation. Uh, This wasn't just thrown together at the last minute. It was well thought out so that the Spirit of God would want to show up. There's been planning, prayer, preparation for that hour and so we try to put in our preparation in every facet of worship and we seek to be organized and orderly so that it paves the way for the message of Christ to come through in a distraction free environment and because of that we strive to hold the standard high for our volunteers and for our staff alike I try to invest about 20 hours of study and preparation and putting together every sermon that I preach so that in those hours the Holy Spirit can kind of nudge and direct my decisions. And each ministry must be prudent and wise in their choices. I mean, if everyone wanted to sing a solo here at church, in time you would stop inviting people to come with you because each week would just be kind of a roll of the dice on maybe what would happen up there on the stage. But it's not just with music. It's in every Uh, arena that we want to put our best foot forward for the Lord. We want ushers to be orderly. We want greeters to be friendly and reassuring. Uh, We have competent, loving and caring childcare volunteers and we have a nursery for people to take their baby to because even the happiest of babies can be distracting to others sometimes. And we do our best to assure that it's a secure setting. Uh, We have greeters, worship technicians, children's workers, and, and on and on. But here's my fear. My concern is that after you hear this message, You will begin to see worship as a setting where distractions are minimized and the unusual is ostracized, where worship is an elaborate event planning extravaganza that is simply all about organization. But while these things are true, they are a secondary application of this message. They certainly aren't the main focus nor the intent. And so here is my heartbeat on this. I believe that if you're doing it for the Lord, then it deserves your very best effort, whatever it is. And I want to remove any distractions of unfriendliness, of confusion, undue noise, or long, boring sermons so that the gospel message is simple and clear, as compelling and attractive as it can possibly be, so that you will respond to Christ. And can I tell you something? We want the very same thing for your kids and for your grandkids. And when they are in a class, when they are in the nursery, when they're in children's church, when they come to Bible Buddies and they're learning all about Jesus, we want them to come to know Christ as their Savior. And when you come through the doors of the church building, when you, when you come to church here and you take your seat, I want you to sense that something special is about to happen. That in the next hour and 15 minutes, you will have the opportunity in a fitting and orderly way to worship the God of the universe through singing and through praying and through giving, uh, through listening, through learning, and through responding There should be this incredible sense of expectancy as God speaks personally and directly to you and your life through just a variety of mouthpieces. And you leave the place, you leave the church building having seen Jesus and experienced his love in a fresh way and you are a different person than when you came in. Several years ago, the executives of Disney World were surprised to to find from their exit surveys that some families were actually leaving the theme park disappointed. And and so you say, well, that's impossible. I mean, how could that be? How could anyone go to Disney World and then leave disappointed? Well, their exit surveys pointed to, to one common flaw. The guests had traveled hundreds of miles to come and to see one person, but during their visits, they never, maybe never crossed path with him. Any guesses on who it is, who it was that they couldn't see? Yeah, his name was Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse but think about that for a moment how could everyone possibly see mickey mouse i mean after all this is a huge place and you can't have a bunch of mickey mouses walking around everywhere you know because if a kid is riding a tram and his family sees a mickey over here uh, someplace and and at the same time a mickey at another spot that would blow their mind and, and disney world will become less magical And so here's what the Disney executives came up with. They created a way that everyone who wanted to see Mickey Mouse would be able to see him. And now, on every day of the week at 3 p.m., a parade comes down Main Street. And guess who's leading the way as the Grand Marshal? That's right. Mickey Mouse. Disney... The Disney discovery that they made here, I think, applies to worship as well. Uh, You may have come, uh, you may go to church for a myriad of reasons. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're feeling guilty, or maybe you're searching for something. Whether you realize it or not, people attend church in hopes of seeing one person. It's not a singer. It's not the greeter, and for sure it's not this preacher. No, his name is Jesus. And when you come to worship, it is our responsibility to make certain that you see him up close and personal. And it's my prayer that you never leave a service disappointed because in my selfish interest, I've focused your attention on the preacher instead of on Christ. Let me tell you something. I guarantee you I will I will let you down. That's a a guarantee. The teachers, the volunteers, the staff of this church, they'll also disappoint you and fail you. But you know what? Jesus never fails. And He can meet your needs and He can save your soul. And if you have never turned your life over to Jesus, You have the distinct opportunity today to do that. You have the chance to say right there where you are, Lord, I turn my life over to you. I've tried to be a good person. I'm doing the best I can, but I still come up short. And I realize that, and I just want to turn my life over to you. And so if you have any kind of spiritual decision to make today, I would love for you to get in touch with us here at the church. I would be glad to talk with you and guide you in that next step on your journey to Jesus.